the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Our journey through Revelation continues today as we continue with our series called The Seven Churches. Join us for Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner next. The seven letters to the seven churches, they hold for us amazing truths and insightful, practical application, not just for the seven churches that these letters were written to a couple thousand years ago, but the churches today as well, you and I. This is highly applicable. We invite you to join us today as we continue with part two of our series called The Seven Churches. Smyrna and Pergamum are on tap. Here's Pastor Gary with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. The Lord willing, we are going to look at two of the churches today being addressed in the book of Revelation. Now remember who these churches are. Turn back to the first chapter because so much of chapters 2 and 3 are rooted there in chapter 1. In verse 11 of chapter 1 we read, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So these are the addressees of the letter, and they were, of course, all in Asia Minor. Then beginning in verse 12, you have this highly figurative description of the resurrected Christ. And he will identify himself largely to each of these churches in terms of that revelation of himself there in chapter 1. Now, last week, we looked at the church in Ephesus. And today, I plan to look at the churches of Smyrna and Pergamum. So let's begin by looking at the church in the city of Smyrna. Smyrna was about 35 miles north of Ephesus, which we looked at last week. And Smyrna was the glory of Asia. In fact, you might say it was a beautiful, all-American city. It was a strategic and prosperous trade center. And there was a lot of wealth in Smyrna and the prosperous uh, trade. But however, the city was destroyed in 500 B.C., long before this letter was written. But it was rebuilt in 300 B.C. as a planned city. And it was the first city in Asia to build a temple for Caesar worship. And it was a center of great sporting events and activities. Now, how does Jesus identify himself here? He says, I am the first and the last who is dead And has come to life. And as it says in chapter 1 verse 18. I will live forever. And that's because he has the keys of death and hell. He has total sovereignty and rule over all cities. Over his church. Over death. And that's important to remember. 
total control over death and everything else in life. And though he died, he's now alive, never to die again, in his sovereign overall, even Smyrna. This is important to remember because Smyrna experienced a municipal death and then a resurrection. In 500 B.C. it died, and in 300 B.C. it was resurrected. And then also the Caesar cult there featured a natural resurrection ritual connected with the seasons. But over against both of these phony resurrections, Christ sets himself up as the truly resurrected one, the one who died, the one who God raised from the dead, and now he is the Lord of all. And all cities, as well as the church, are accountable to him. He commends them, and what a sweet word he says to them. He says, I know what you are undergoing. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, the first thing he says is, I know the kind of troubles that are affecting your church. I know you are suffering tribulation, serious trouble, a suffering of even a physical sort. And did you notice here already what he said about tribulation? He said, I know you're suffering tribulation. And then in verse 10, do you not fear what you are about to suffer? Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Notice the first thing tribulation is, first time tribulation is used in chapter 1, verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word and the testimony of Jesus. So, if someone were to ask me, when is the tribulation? I would say, it is what John was experiencing in the first century. Because, notice he said, he was your partaker in tribulation. And that tribulation spilled over into the life of the church in Smyrna. And all of this, of course, is leading up to the fall of Jerusalem and persecution by the Roman Empire. But he says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, and that's pretty amazing. Because this was a very wealthy city, yet apparently the people in the church were not a people of financial means at all. Although, he said, you really are rich. In other words, you have what counts. Christ made himself poor that you might become rich. And you have those riches that are the most important in life. As important as material wealth is, what you have is much more important, Smyrna. You may be poor in the sight of the world, but in God's sight you are rich because you are heirs of God. Everything God is and everything God has. So I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In other words, 
and we find this in several places in the New Testament, the persecution of the Jews, which was the first persecution the church experienced, was largely in terms of slander, an attempt to discredit the Christians and make them look bad. The Jews of the first century joined with the Romans to make life rough for Christians. Now, you need to know the Old Testament because the Jews of the first century were all about law, law, law. To them, what was important, rabbinical law, not grace. But on at least one occasion, the Jews gathered wood on the Sabbath to assist the Romans in burning an early church father. So all of this talking about law meant absolutely nothing when it came to opposing Christians. Now they're called the synagogue of Satan. And I want to read to you from our Westminster Confession of Faith what it says about how it uses the phrase synagogue of Satan. And you can find this on page 686 in your hymn book if you would like to follow along. Page 686. And I'll be reading from chapter 25, paragraph 5. It says, The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and to air, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. It says, whereas there is no perfect church, and even the theologically and ethically purest churches on earth still have air and mixture within them, and some churches have so degenerated that they are no longer churches at all, but they are synagogues of Satan. I'll give you two examples. The first is, of course, the Roman Catholic Church with all of their heresies. But the second example is the official stance from the Reformed Presbyterian Church of the United States, or the RPCUS, which we almost became members of. They say... A synagogue of Satan is the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, or the PCUSA. They say it has become so apostate, and yet it is the denomination that most of the big Presbyterian churches belong. But that denomination has so degenerated into unbelief and heresy that it could be called a synagogue of Satan. This is a church that believes women should be elders and deacons and creation is uh, not just a six-day, 24-hour period of time and a number of other heresies. And, of course, there are others that fit in there as well. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, what does he mean by they are pseudo-Jews? In other words, what does he mean when he says these people claim to be Jews, but they're really not? We'll turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 2. I'll read verses 25 and then verses 28 and 29, and you'll see what he means. First of all, Romans 2, 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Then verse 28, verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew 
who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now, that is a radical statement. It literally says that Jews are not Jews. Christians are Jews. It says that a Jew is not simply one who has gone through external ceremonial rites like circumcision. A Jew is someone who has experienced inward circumcision, a transformation, a regeneration of the heart. That is the true Jew. So what Jesus is saying is, these people who claim to be Jews, their hearts are far from me. They may even claim to be Messianic Jews, but there is nothing Messianic about them because they have totally departed from the truth and are now a synagogue of Satan. So now in verse 10, you see the complaint there? I hope not because there is none. Jesus has no complaint against the church of Smyrna. Not a word of criticism by the head of the church, even though the work of Satan is nowhere more prominent than in Smyrna. But reproof is unnecessary. Even though they were being severely persecuted by Satan, and the activity of Satan in Smyrna was more intense and more dominant than usual, the church there was growing in grace. And deserved no reproof for compromising with Satan. Now, that is the opposite of books that we find on Satan today in our bookstores. You read books on Satan today by the rapturists and they tell us where Satan is most active. That's where Christians are most compromising. And that's where the fight is so desperate that no one can hope to win and be victorious and not so the church of Smyrna it was faithful now there is a promise do not fear what you are about to suffer what a promise here is here he is complimenting them for their faithfulness and he says I'm going to award you now for your faithfulness with Suffering. Notice what he says. Don't fear. Walk by faith, not by fear. For you have some hard days ahead of you. Don't fear what you are about to suffer. I have you in my hand. You are under my control. I am sovereign over all cities and all states and all aspects of life. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you in prison. Don't Worry about it. It's so that you might be tested. That your faith might be made strong. I am going to use Satan to test you and to try you and to make you strong. And you will come out stronger on the other side. And you will have tribulation for ten days. So be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now what is this ten days? You've been faithful to me, and now there will be a time of suffering, and I'm going to use that to purify you and cleanse you. 
and I will make you strong by it. I will control it. It will not be more than you can take, and it is going to last for 10 days. Well, what are these 10 days? Well, it could mean a couple of things, and you can actually just take your pick. It could mean not a very long period of time. It could mean a severe 10 days, and then there will be relief. But I tend to believe, however, as everything else in the book of Revelation is figurative, that he's talking about 10 waves of persecution that the church actually went under in the first couple of centuries of its life on earth. There were 10 definite periods of persecution in the first 200 to 250 years of the life of the Christian church. Now, Christian rapturism, as I've told you before, is a perversion of the faith. What does it say? It says Christ is so good to us that he's not going to allow us to go through the tribulation, but that he'll rapture us out of it before it even begins. You see, rapturism is a religion of flight. It's a religion of escapism for which there is no basis whatsoever in the word of God. God does not call us to flight or to escapism. But what does God do throughout the history of the Bible with reference to the enemies of the people of God to rescue them from their enemies? He destroys their enemies. He didn't rapture his people out. He destroys their enemies. He destroyed Egypt and then destroyed Pharaoh's army long before the Israelites entered the promised land. The Bible says absolutely nothing about escape or flight from the tribulation, from unpleasantness, from the battle, from responsibilities. Any kind of evangelism that causes one of its converts to say, quote, I have become a Christian because life is now going to be so wonderful, is a deception. Was life wonderful in that sense for the first 200 years of the Christian church, 10 years of persecution? No. Sometimes when you become a Christian, life is hard, even for the rest of your life on earth. In many cases, it was easier before you became a Christian. But after that, now you have to do battle with Satan and all of his dupes. Then our text says, be faithful unto death. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due time you shall reap if you do not faint. Be faithful, and I will give you the crown of life. And boy, they knew what that crown meant. A crown of life was the wreath a winner of a sporting event would receive. And remember, Smyrna was famous for sports. And he says, if you will be faithful unto death, I will give you a crown, the crown of a victor. Listen, death itself will be crowned in life if you have to die a martyr's death. There are stories of Christians dying in arenas throughout Rome. The Romans would arrest whole congregations, men, women, children, babies, old people, young people. And they would huddle in the middle of an arena as lions would come out to devour them. And they would be singing hymns 
as the lions tore out the outer line of the people and then the inner line until the last person stood who was still singing the hymn while being devoured. They were crowned with life even in the midst of their death. And then he says in verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. This is something that takes spiritual ability to understand. But he who gets the victory shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, what is the second death? Well, most people don't know that the Bible speaks of a first death and a second death. And it talks about a first resurrection and a second resurrection. And you can find that in John 5. The first death is the first death that Adam experienced. God said, Adam, the moment you eat of the tree, you will die. The moment he ate, he didn't die, at least physically. He lived actually another 900 years. But he did die spiritually. So the first death in the human race was a spiritual death. And the second death is our physical death at the end of our lives. The first death we are saved from by regeneration. And that's the first resurrection. And the second resurrection is the physical resurrection that saves us from physical death. It restores us to physical life. So he says, if you are faithful and continue to be so until the end, no matter how severe the persecution becomes, you'll not be hurt by that second death. When you die physically, however you die, you will not be hurt. You will be brought into the, my, he says, actual presence. I'm not saying death doesn't hurt, but there is no sting because you will then be in the presence of our almighty God. So today, God offers you the power of his resurrection in the very midst of evil and suffering and Satan's kingdom. And after you and I have suffered for a little while, Christ will give us the crown of life if we are faithful unto death. And now we come to the church of Pergamum. This is an interesting city. It was a very religious city. But to say it, is, it was religious is not to say that it was Christian or even to say it was moral. It is simply to say that it was Religious. Because you see, they had all kinds of temples to pagan gods. There was a temple to Zeus. There was a temple to Athena. A temple to Dionysus. A temple to... I'm uh, not sure I can say this correctly. Asclepius, As well as three temples dedicated to the worship of the Caesars. Pergamum was also a great center of intellectualism. In the ancient world, the great library that burnt down was in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. There was no library really to compare it to, except perhaps the library in Pergamon. It was uh, the second largest library in the ancient world, and, and uh, that library had approximately 200,000 volumes. In fact, there was so much writing and publishing going on in Pergamon that parchment was invented in that city. It was also a city of statism. And what is statism? 
Statism refers to that civil institution that acts like a messiah and seeks to save people and provide for them from cradle to grave, much like we have here today. Statism was connected to false worship, pagan religions all over the world, because their god was usually the head of the state. Therefore, a god's dominion all over the world was the state's dominion and control and was thus a totalitarian form of government throughout the world. Pergamum was a center of statism because it was the center of the Caesar cults all over Asia. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. That's four zero eight eight six six five six zero seven. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB. That stands for Post Mailbox Number four zero two fourteen eighty four Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is nine five zero three two. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. (music) 